It is a beautiful day to be gathered with you all here. Uh, glad to see you today. If you would, would you turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. This will be towards, towards the end of your New Testament. Just a few books before. And uh, we'll be in 1 Peter 1. We'll look at 3 through 12 today, verses 3 through 12. Uh, and so I'll get there in a moment. But what we're doing today is we're starting a new series. We do this each year. Uh, we call it Advent. Uh, Advent simply means coming. And so it's a time in which we look at the coming of Christ, uh, his first coming, uh, in which he was born as a man, uh, born as a child, but born as a man uh, who would rescue his people from their sins through his own death and resurrection. And as we look back, what we're doing is anticipating also the future coming of Christ. And so we have subtitled this, Light Has Dawned, uh, which comes from Matthew 4, which, in which Matthew is quoting Isaiah 9, which Alan read earlier. And Matthew is quoting it as he is confirming uh, the beginning of Christ's ministry and the land that he comes out of as a way to affirm that this is the Messiah. This is the child who was born. And he says there, uh, as Isaiah says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. And so uh, Christ is the light who dawned. Amen. And so what we're wanting to do is as we celebrate Advent over the next few weeks, like I said a moment ago, we're celebrating the first coming of Christ as a child born like a man to die for man's sins so that he might save his people from their sins. That's how Matthew 1 uh, announces him. He will be the one who saves his people from their sins. Yet we also are celebrating as we anticipate the second coming of Christ when he will come to gather his people to execute judgment on the righteous and the unrighteous and to establish the new heaven and the new earth where his people will dwell with him forevermore. And there... As Revelation says, they will be his people and he will be their God. Amen? And we look forward to this. And so as we go through the series, our focus will be on the lights of Christ. And what we mean by that is the light of hope, the light of peace, the light of joy, the light of love, which we'll actually look at on Christmas Eve Eve together. So please make plans to be here for Christmas Eve Eve. Uh, not only for the message, uh, but I hear that there is a 49 members in our, there is a 49 member choir. Is that how I'm supposed to say that? There are 49 people in the choir, <laughs> which is amazing. And so they want to sing to someone, right? So uh, please come and otherwise it'll just be me out there not singing because I don't sing. Uh, I do, but I don't, right? And so, uh, please come. It'll be, it'll be wonderful. That choir is made up of everyone from kindergarten through uh, adulthood. Amen? And so, praise God for bringing together a choir of all generations represented in our church family. And uh, they're already putting in hard work, so y'all pray for them. That's a, a brief commercial here as we get ready to get started. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we look at the light of hope together? I'm going to read 1 Peter 1, 3 
through 12. When I'm finished reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this time that we have together to be in your word. God, we ask that you would empower us, enlighten us, by your Spirit alive in us to see and to savor all that this says to us about Christ Jesus, your Son. Lord, may we understand on a, at the, the foundation of our hearts, deeply rooted there and in our minds, may we understand the hope that we've received in Christ. May we live with this hope at the forefront of all that we do, especially as we endure various trials. God, I ask for your help as I proclaim such precious truths to your people today. Uh, may you empower me for this, but even more so. May Christ be magnified. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I think that the Christmas season is a bit like a highlighter, the kind of highlighter you mark things in a book with. It, bright yellow is my preferred color of highlighting. Um, and the Christmas season has a way of highlighting in bright yellow for me all the things that are currently off in my life. As I slow down or don't slow down, as I look to Christ or don't look to Christ, as I uh, suffer um, wants and desires or don't suffer those things, whatever it may be, whether it's financial hardships or the inability to manage time as things get busy, 
Maybe there's heartache that you experience during this time that is amplified during this season due to the loss of loved ones. If there's misplaced desires, there's covetousness that exists in our hearts and minds, and those become very prevalent during such seasons of want. Maybe there's strained relationships with family and friends, or friends, or many other such things. What I'm trying to say is that the Christmas season has a way of amplifying all of those things. It shows us brightly all the things that are not right about our lives. And I suspect that the great part of that isn't just simply because schedules become busier and so you find it harder to manage time or you get stressed. It's not simply due to financial burdens as you think about how will we afford gifts for our 128 family members this Christmas, <laughs> right? The key there is to make your own things. <laughs> or any number of things, how will you endure heartache? How will you walk through um, those kinds of things? This is, you know, just honestly, one of the difficulties of this season even more so this year than last year, is just the shadows of Winnie that exist in our home during this time of year as stocking is above the fireplace and her ornaments are on the Christmas tree. You start thinking of those things, right? And you deeply miss. And so I think what happens, though, is that during the Christmas season, the light of Christ shines brightly. Now, that happens whether you're paying attention or not. Right? That, that happens whether you choose to see it or not, because in choosing not to see it, say you spend Christmas season just celebrating Christmas like a pagan would, like the world does, and you never pay attention to Christ, well, you will experience suffering in that. You'll have hardship in that. You'll be stressed out. You'll want and not be able to provide. You'll... You understand what I'm saying? There will be problems, and those problems amplify the need for Christ. That's the light of Christ shining and illuminating the darkness in your heart during the Christmas season. But even for those of us who seek to make Christmas about Christ, even in the practice of traditions that we love in our homes, right? As we seek to make those things about Christ, well, then there's certainly the light of Christ shining down in our homes, and more directly into our own hearts. And they reveal that things are not right. That something's awry, something's missing. And so our struggles get illuminated. Our trials are illuminated. Our sufferings are illuminated. The brokenness of the world that we live in is illuminated during this season. The point I'm trying to make is that we, even though we've seen a great light, we are a people who dwell in great darkness. Ours is a world of hardship and strife and war and pain and sadness and, in a word, sin. And yet, there is great hope. Yet, we are not hopeless. There, there is hope for living, 
There is living hope, as it's called here in the text, for all who are in Christ Jesus by grace through faith. And so because Christ came to the earth, because he lived a perfect life, because he died for the sins of his people and he rose again on the third day, his people now can walk in the light of hope. You need to know a bit about Peter's audience. Peter's audience was the dispersed Jews throughout the regions. But the Jews who have been dispersed by various persecutions, uh, various trials, and they're existing in more trials. They're living in more persecution. And so the book of First Peter is written in large part to encourage them during such sufferings. It's it's written here. There's a reason that Peter starts with the theme of hope because he's going to continue the theme of hope throughout his book. Many of them facing great trials. Many of them facing the sufferings and afflictions at the hands of the ungodly. And yet, Peter's wisdom for them isn't some worldly wisdom. It's not, hold on because things may change soon. Or, hold on, this can't last forever. Or, hold on, don't, don't worry about it, just ignore the issues. Or, just sure fire doom and gloom. I, things couldn't get any worse, right? This, this is not what he's offering. Things are bad. The darkness is grim, to be sure, yet it cannot and will not eclipse their hope. That's his message. Your hope cannot be eclipsed by the darkness. The, the light of hope shines brightly for them as they await the day of Christ's return. So he's saying, hold on, hope. Live with hope. And if you're taking notes today, you can write down this as, as I see it as kind of the main point of what the text is showing us today. The light of hope illuminates the paths of various trials as we wait for the day of Jesus Christ. If you want to add a couple of words in there, you could say, as we wait for the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The light of hope illuminates the paths of various trials as we wait for the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 3 through 5, Peter shows us that hope is preserved by God's power. Hope is preserved by God's power. We see that in verses 3 through 5 here. Let's read it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. Everybody say imperishable. Undefiled. Everybody say undefiled. And unfading. Everyone say unfading. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wonderful. Peter begins with 
a blessing to God, and I debated on whether or not to even include this part in the sermon because I have trouble, as you know, not including parts in sermons, <laughs> right? <laughs> or not not including, I should say. Um, but this was too good not to include. Peter begins with this blessing to God as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are things that are important for us to observe. It's not just simple words here. He's making a statement about the deity of Christ here. Because in the Old Testament, God was often not addressed as Father. Rather, he was known as Creator, Redeemer, God, Lord. Right? There's, there's many other names, but we don't see Father much. Yet Jesus who is God's Son, teaches Christians to pray to their heavenly Father, and he called his Father, he called God his Father often. Now for Jesus to call his Father, uh, to call God his Father was a big deal, and ultimately it's what he went to the cross for. They deemed that he was a blasphemer, though we know that is not true. Because what he's declaring is that he is of the same nature the same being, the same essence as the Father. He was one with God. Amen? This is important. There's a man by the name of St. Nicholas who was the bishop of Myra in the early 300s. Now, you may have heard of St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas uh, was uh, a part of a council that was embattled partly because of a man named Arius. Now, Arius asserted that Christ was not of the same nature or essence of God, rather that he was created by God. Now, that is heresy of the highest order. It's a violation of what we know about the Trinity. We have now, as a result of such heresies, a creed called the Athanasian Creed, which declares the Trinity of our God. It's incredible. It's worth reading often. But what happens is Arius begins to assert that Christ, Jesus, is not the Son of God, that he was created by God, but he is not one in essence or as, uh, of God. And so St. Nicholas takes heresy very seriously. Yes, that's St. Nicholas. And he proceeds to punch Arius in the face for such rank heresy. Now, these are the stories you should tell about St. Nicholas around your dinner table in Christmas tree. I praise God for St. Nicholas and for his defense of the Trinity. Amen. It's worthy of praise. He uh, was eventually found not guilty, though he was uh, put under probation for a period as all sides were examined. <laughs> anyway, so for Jesus to assert that God is his father, he's saying, I am one with God. And so we, we see that many such blessings as what Peter starts here, starts with here, exist in the New Testament epistles. They too were asserting the, the deity of Christ. 
And yet Peter takes the blessing even further by declaring God's Son to be our Lord. Blessed or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Exclamation point. He's joyous about this. Peter is personalizing the nature of the relationship that Christians have with Jesus Christ. He's saying he is our Lord. He is not distant from us. He does not just reside in the heavens far from us. He is our Lord. He is near to us. He belongs to us and we belong to him. We can claim him as our Lord. I want you to know, and we'll get into it more in a moment as we look at verses 6 through 9, but this is the great comfort for Christians in times of suffering is that Jesus Christ is your Lord. We should probably have response time right there. Because if we examine the corners of our hearts, we examine the dark corners of our minds, we examine the actions of our day, we examine the way that we treat our wives or the way that uh, you, wives treat your husbands or the way that we treat our children or the way that we treat coworkers or the way that we live in general, the things that we long for and desire, the things that we pursue, the things we'll make plans to commit, the sins that we'll plan out, which clearly show that we are under the lordship of our own sin, we would begin to recognize that such a statement as Jesus Christ is our Lord isn't always true. It doesn't hold true in my heart in every millisecond of every day or in every action of every day or in every word of every day. Right? Okay. It's just me. Well, just know that your pastor is a sinner. And I struggle to make Christ my Lord. I wrestle with fears and failures and frustrations and wrong desires and wrong actions and wrong words. These things are illuminated for me at Christmas for whatever reason. I just call it grace. It's the grace and mercy of the Lord that he would illuminate these things. But what we see here is Peter saying, Christ, our Lord. There's a personal relationship with the Son of God who rules over heaven and earth. He's the king of all kings. He knows you and he loves you. He's near to you, his people. Brothers and sisters, I want you to never, ever, ever, ever forget, especially in the middle of your trials, that Christ is Lord. That he loves you and he comforts you. That he's near to you. That he'll train you and teach you, disciple you. He'll mold you more into the image of himself by the Spirit of God alive in you through all of those things. It's their purpose. How did such a relationship, how did such a loving relationship come to us? Well, Peter says it's by God's great mercy. 
He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How much of that sentence can you take credit for? Zero. Not one ounce. His great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the work of God. God is merciful to sinners, and sinners are, to be sure, pitiful creatures. There is no righteousness in them. There is no good in them. They are in desperate need of salvation, and yet they cannot do a thing of their own volition or will to cause their salvation, to bring it about, because all of their works are tainted by their own sin. Nothing exists in purity for them. And so it's important for us to see, it's important for us to understand and to confess our sinfulness because our sinfulness is the only thing we can bring to God for salvation. We bring our sin and he gives us the righteousness of Christ Jesus. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the transaction. Christ takes our sin from us, gives us the righteousness, his own righteousness. And so that's why Peter states that it is God who causes us to be born again. God gives new birth to his people. And so when a sinner comes to Christ and puts his faith in Christ, then he is born anew in God's family and he receives a new Nature, earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, where I just read verse 21 and verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, and behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. This new nature provides the living hope then. Once you were hopeless, and now you are a people who live in hope. You have living hope. And while this living hope is eternal life, meaning it awaits us, there's a real hope of eternal life that is out there in the future, either when Christ returns or we die and go to be with Christ. There's eternal life on the other end of that. But that's not all that it touches. It doesn't just touch the future. Eternal life touches the present. It touches the here and the now. It changes everything today for you. That's why you are a new creation in Christ. Old has passed, new has come. You're born again to a living hope. You've been transformed, brothers and sisters. You are not a people with no hope. You are a people that should be full of hope, and it should be an exuberant hope. It's a joy-filled hope. It's a confident hope. It's an optimistic hope. It, it, is, it isn't only that Full salvation awaits you when Christ comes, but it's being worked out in you now by God's Spirit each day. It's a living hope. It's full of hope now. And yes, we wait for it to be revealed in full, and there will be, a, there will be full-on glory displayed on that day. It'll be unadulterated. It'll be unblemished. It'll be, there won't be the, the, the 
the sinfulness, the scars of sinfulness. There won't be any of that to taint the view of glory. We'll see it in full. There will be no more sadness, no more death, no more pain, no more struggle, no more strife, no more wars, no more sin. It's being worked out in you now. And so we wait for it, but you dwell in the promise of it now. There are benefits to this now, which transforms your life now, especially in the midst of trials. And so this light of hope gives us confident optimism for whatever befalls us. For we know that no matter what may come, no matter what lies in our future, no matter what has happened in our past, there is hope only in Christ Jesus our Lord, and it will not put us to shame. Romans 5, 2 through 5, through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He's talking about the same hope that Peter's talking about here in 1 Peter 1. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope, Paul writes, does not put us to shame. So that means it's not a false hope. It's not like a, I hope I get a hippopotamus for Christmas. Right? <laughs> As for you, boys and girls... It's not that kind of wishful thinking. When the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about wishing upon a star. We have this connotation of hope because a lot of times we say, I hope that the Razorbacks do well with Bobby Petrino. I, I hope that Texas doesn't make the playoffs. Amen. Right? I hope, whatever. We say I hope a lot. And so I hope has really just become I wish or I want. But that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is confident, it's certain. What God lays out for you as hope is something that you can be confident in because it will come to pass. It does produce now and it will produce later. There is fruitfulness to such hope. He says, and hope does not put us to shame. Now listen to the why. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What's he saying? Because you have been born again to a living hope. It's the same thing. Therefore, we must look past the trials doesn't mean you ignore the trials. I'm just saying in the thick of the trial, you don't let the cloudiness of the trial, the monsoon of the trial, drown out the fact that there's sunshine and hope on the other end of that thing. It's keeping. Hope keeps you. Look at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4 here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
Look at the inheritance. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This inheritance that awaits us, I'm just going to repeat the text because I cannot add anything that would make the text more precious ever. This hope that awaits us is imperishable. This inheritance that awaits you is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. Brothers and sisters, what this means is that there is nothing in the world. There is nothing under the control of Satan. There is nothing, nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And if God be for you, then who can be against you? It's Romans 8. Though all hell may rise against you, though all hell may seek to storm your life from all sides, and you feel as though you are surrounded by hell itself, you will not be put to death if your faith is in Christ Jesus. Yours is an inheritance of life eternal. It cannot be overcome by the evil one. This is what we mean when we say it is imperishable. We mean that it cannot pass away. It does not die, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would have eternal life and will not perish. It's imperishable. This inheritance will not pass away, nor can it decay. It, it doesn't rot it doesn't grow stale. It doesn't grow weary. It keeps on. And the armies of hell cannot destroy this inheritance. We see that it's undefiled. But it cannot be polluted by sin. It cannot be stained by sin. Evil cannot touch it. And so the worldly life is only perishable and defiled and the Christian life is only imperishable and undefiled. You see the contrast there. There is nothing that exists in the life of the worldly that will not perish. There is nothing that exists in the lives of the worldly that will not be defiled. Everything is perishable. Everything is defiled. And yet for the Christian, there is nothing about that life which is imperishable. Sorry, everything about that life is imperishable and undefiled because it belongs to Christ. It's his. And so then it too is unfading. The eternal life of the Christian's inheritance has no decaying elements to it. It's unfading. All of it belongs to Christ. He holds it. And that's where Peter goes to next here in verse 5. Look at it. Who by, talking about the people, God's people here, he's, talk, he's, he's talking to the people he's writing to specifically, but to us as well, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so God's supreme power, which is seen in his omniscience, his omnipotence, and his sovereignty, that supreme power keeps your inheritance. And so too, he keeps you. He keeps you by his own sovereignty. He keeps you by his own omnipotence. 
as all omniscience. He keeps you because he alone is all-powerful. In Christ, then, you are secure. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. That's what Christ says in John chapter 10. We are there by faith. Yes, but even the faith is empowered by God. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so as trials arise, faith is tested. I know I've said a lot here, but you don't want to miss these next few moments of what's about to happen in this text. As trials arise, faith is tested. When Christians keep their faith through trials, then they may know, and we may know, that their faith is genuine faith, because such faith is evidence of God's keeping power. It's evidence of what He does. God grants you faith, and God preserves your faith. Therefore, saving faith is permanent because it fully relies on the power of God alone. Amen. And so the light of hope illuminates the paths of various trials as we wait for the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at how hope is proven by trials now. Verses 6 through 9 here. In this you rejoice... Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What's he saying? He's saying because of everything I just wrote to you in verses 3 through 5, we greatly rejoice. We greatly rejoice because our hope is preserved by God's power. If our day, uh, sorry, if our hope was always changing, if it was a moving target and you never knew where it would be the next morning when you woke up, if it were unsteady, if it were here one day and gone the next, then you of all pity, uh, of all people, brothers and sisters, must be pitied. But it doesn't move, does it? Christ is a sure and steady foundation. He is the cornerstone of our faith, and everything that is being built up in the church is being built on the cornerstone, and the cornerstone is set so that the whole foundation remains secure, and so that everything that's built on the foundation, which is the writing of the prophets and the apostles, now these stones that are being built, which are us, are set on a foundation that is immovable. It's sure. Your faith, the object of our faith doesn't move, and so the object of our hope doesn't move. It's solid. Hope remains by God's power. 
And so therefore, we can rejoice in any trial because our hope comes from our relationship with Christ Jesus by God's mercy. It's coming to us. It's done outside of us and comes down to us. And so then as we face trials of various kinds, we must always be rejoicing. John MacArthur points out something helpful here that Peter shows his readers. He shows, Peter shows his readers that trouble will not last. He says, for a little while. He shows also that trouble serves a purpose. He says, if necessary. This means that God is not willy-nilly about the trouble that he allows in your life. It's necessary. It's necessary for the building of faith. It's necessary. Sometimes the trials that we go through are necessary for calling us back, for bringing about repentance. You've heard it said, you've probably said such about some people that he needed to hit rock bottom before he was brought back. He needed to come to the end of himself before he realized that he needed Christ, right? We've said such things. What we're saying, what we're acknowledging, all of us in such statements, is that the trial was about faith. The trial was about producing hope. The trial was about producing Christ-likeness. The trial was good. It's good. Because the result is good. Because the end of it was meant for good. Right? And so therefore we greatly rejoice. Trouble serves a purpose, he says, if necessary. MacArthur goes on to point out what Peter's showing here. Trouble brings distress. He says, if you are grieved by trials. There's grief. There's deep grief in trials. It can be the loss of a loved one. It can be the brokenness of a relationship. It can be um, all sorts of things, all manner of things. He says the troubles come in various forms, various trials, he says. He also says that trouble should not diminish Christian joy. We greatly rejoice, even though we are troubled by various trials. And in that, in, in that troubling of various trials, we find the tested genuineness of our faith. This is God's primary purpose for allowing trouble in your life. He seeks to test your faith. Now, you said earlier, Kyle, that God was omniscient. He knows all things. Yes, he does. Well, then he must know that my faith is either genuine or it's not. Yes, he does. The question is, do you? The testing is for you. The testing is for those around you. Is their faith genuine? Is my faith genuine? And so we test our faith, but the benefit of this testing or this fire is for the Christian, not for God. Now, it's for his benefit in that he's going to get great glory out of those saints who can hold on to Christ in the middle of such trials. And that, it's a benefit. But the knowing of faith, the seeing of faith, that benefit belongs to the Christian. They get to see, yes, he keeps me. 
Yes, he's near to me. Yes, he loves me enough to call me back out of my sinfulness and to draw me near to himself. It was painful, it was embarrassing, but he draws me near because he's gracious and he's merciful and he's mighty to save. He loves you enough to save you out of such sinfulness. Do you understand what we're saying? In the moment, we see the embarrassment. In the moment, we see the shame. In the moment, we see all that all we think everyone else might know about what we're going through. But what we need to see and what Satan is trying to blind you from in all of that embarrassment and shame, what you need to be able to see is that God loves you so much that he saves. He saves you. Praise God for such mercy. Wretched sinner that we are, praise him for mercy. But you can apply the same logic to tragedy. In tragedy, your faith is tested. He didn't send you through tragedy because he hates you. you. You don't go through those things because God doesn't love you. You go through them because God loves you. And he has a great purpose for your life. He has a great plan for his own glory to be spread throughout the earth. I'm walking this and have questioned this month to month at times, day to day, hour to hour, wrestled with it. But I can't look back across the, the last 15 months and say that God has not done mighty things through the tragedy of Winnie's early passing. I would be a, a fool to say something so silly. That would be selfish of me. And we've decided in our family, we're not going to be a family of self-pity. We're going to trust the Lord. Doesn't mean we won't have moments of self-pity. Don't hear me wrong. I will fail. But at the end of the day, we're going to hold on to Christ. Because he's worth. I want you to know, I don't mean to tell those things to hold ourselves up as heroes. We are not. The same power that saves is the same power that keeps. That's what I'm trying to show you here. And there are many days that I would have loved to heeded Job's wife's words and curse God and die. Could not do it. Couldn't do it. Why? Because I'm good? It's not one bit. Because God is good. And God keeps. And God sanctifies. And he shows you the ugliness that's there, and you repent, and you give it to the Lord, and he grows you from that. He strengthens your faith. All of this, all of this is meant to reveal that tested genuineness of faith. When you come through a trial, still trusting the Lord, you are assured that your faith is genuine. And the same goes for the community of faith around you. They observe faith as well. They see it in you as well. And they're often a major part. You guys, for sure, have been a major part of the sustaining faith of the Jones family in this trial. We're grateful to God for you. 
And this is meant what comes, the tested genuineness of faith, will be fully revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ. Because it is there that we will that what we are may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus, meaning at the time that he comes again. That's the full reward. When Christ comes again, he will call his people to himself. He'll reward them for their faith. And when we see Christ at the second coming, we will receive our full salvation. It'll be completed in that day. We know it now in part as we possess power to overcome our sins, as we possess power to walk through trials, as we possess Christ. And yet, then we will see in full, we will know in full that salvation of eternal glory that belongs to us in Christ. The light of hope illuminates the paths of various trials as we wait for the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, what you see here, and it's a, it, it'll be a small point for me, but I want you to see it. Hope was predicted by the prophets. All of this was predicted by the prophets. This is the looking back. They waited, they hoped, and now we see. They wrote about it, and now we read about it. What they knew in essence, we know by name. They knew there would be a Messiah. We know that the Messiah's name is Jesus Christ. You see what I'm saying? In 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Amazing. Angels know a certain level of glory, brothers and sisters, that you and I do not know, but we know a certain level of glory that the angels long to behold. Amazing. And so finally what we see is that this was predicted by the prophets. They foretold a of a greater exhibit of grace that would come greater than the exodus, greater than the calling back of the remnant of Israel out of captivity, greater than all of those things. There was going to be a greater amount of grace. There was going to be a greater exhibit of grace to be seen in the future when God would write his word on his people's hearts, when he would give them a new spirit, when he would take their old dead heart of stone and remove it and put with them a heart of flesh when he would cause new birth. That was a day in which they longed for. They did not know who the Messiah would be or when the Messiah would come, yet the Spirit of Christ bore witness in them to write about these things. And now we know that these writings, they came to know that these writings were for those who would be after them those who would come later. It was for their faith. And so when the gospel is proclaimed, the prophetic writings of the Old Testament are confirmed. Amen? There are over 300 prophecies in your Old Testament about who the Messiah would be, what he would be, when he would come, the details of his life, and every single one of them is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. That's amazing. 
Those prophecies were written over a thousand or more years, really more, by dozens of writers. And yet they all find their yes and amen in Christ. It's something only God could accomplish. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, sent by God to deliver his people. And as the Old Testament people awaited in hope for the Messiah to come, having their paths illuminated by such hope, so too do we now wait for his second coming when everything will be made right as Christ comes into sight. And so I urge you to confidently hope in Christ, my brothers and sisters, to let the light of such hope illuminate the paths of various trials even now as you wait for the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me and let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for this word on hope that we have received. And Father, I ask that you would help us to be men and women and boys and girls who cling to this hope that we have in Christ. Lord, I understand that this season is full of all manner of things which can cause trial. I pray, Lord, that you would give us repentant hearts. You would give us hearts that seek you, that desire to magnify your name above all else, that we would seek the redemption that lies in Christ Jesus, redemption from sin, redemption for brokenness, Lord, I pray for these, your people, today. Those here who have been born again to a living hope, may they live by it, Father, as they await the day of your Son, Jesus Christ. Would you fill them with hope? Hope that gives them great joy. Hope that fills them with confidence. Hope that comforts in time of need. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know Christ as Lord, who has not submitted themselves to you. Anyone here who hasn't repented of their sins, confessed their need for a Savior, and welcomed Christ Jesus into their lives by faith. Lord, would you draw them to yourself by your Spirit? Would you grant them new life through your Spirit? Would you help them to cry, Abba, Father, today? May they find hope in Jesus. Father, we love you. Thankful for Christ, your Son, who died to save us from our sins. And we're thankful for your spirit which dwells in us to give us new life and to help us walk by the spirit, not by the flesh any longer. 
Would you conform us to Christ? Amen.